Good morning. I'm Elizabeth Andrews, and happy Father's Day to all you daddies out there. Um, we are continuing our reading through Romans, and today's scripture is Romans 14, 1 through 23. You can follow along in your Bible, the New American Standard Version, or follow along on the screen. We have it up here for you as well. Now, accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who does eat, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God, and he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat, and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. And every tongue shall praise to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who is in the way serves Christ, is acceptable to God, and approved by men. So then we pursue the things which make for peace, and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself and what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats. 
because his eating is not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. This is the word of our Lord. Good morning. Happy Father's Day. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. And back in the day, all churches would do is read a portion of a letter and call it good. That was a long passage, wasn't it? That's a lot of meat in there. Um, Thank you. Thank you very much. This passage isn't about the weakness or the inferiority of being a vegetarian. I should say this here in the Northwest. Uh, It's actually a passage about meat that was sacrificed to idols. So there'd be these temples and these uh, sacrifices would be made. The animals would be bled out. And then they would be sold right next door at a huge discounted rate. And it it was a hard thing to pass up on a good deal. Right, And so that's the problem that Paul is addressing here. So vegetarians take no offense. And uh, you carnivorous omnivores out there, you got nothing on them, not through this passage. Uh, I chose to do the whole chapter today because it really is one reading. It really should be read together. And there is one central theme that binds every thought in this chapter together. So we're going to just talk about that one central theme. The word Lord is the Greek word kurios, and it appears 10 times in this passage. And uh, in Paul's context, uh, it's got a bit of a double meaning. Of course, Caesar uh, first started using it and made it very, very popular uh, among, among uh, Paul's contemporaries because he called himself Lord. And by that, he meant that he was God. He was a God. And then uh, when Jesus came, his disciples started proclaiming Jesus as curios or as Lord. And Lord in this context is not just referring to someone who is God, but it's, it's really describing and emphasizing a power dynamic. So when uh, Caesar says he is Lord... He is saying, I am the alpha figure here in this land. I have all power. Everything belongs to me. I have possession. You exist at my command and pleasure. You are answerable to me, and I alone have dominion. And so it's not just saying that God is God or Jesus is God. But what we, what Paul is emphasizing here by using the word Lord 10 times in this chapter, which is a lot as the main theme here, is that God really is the powerful person. He is the one who has dominion. He is the one to whom everything else will give account. Everybody else is a servant of the one Lord. We've been talking about this idea of authority. That's the Greek word exousia. And then we've been talking about the word power, dunamis. It's just might. Right and might. And this word Lord brings right and might together in one person. Lord. The central theme 
of this chapter. And we have some examples of this. I'm going to give you a few. Verse 4, who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Why is the Lord able to do that? Well, because he's the Lord. There's a power dynamic here. The Lord is powerful, and he's able to provide for his servants. Verse 7 to 8, For not one of us lives for himself. Not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. And that's a very powerful, authoritative person. As in, he is the author of life and death. Okay, one more. Verse 23. And whatever is not from faith is sin. And here in this context, Paul is defining faith as your consciousness of the Lord. That you are aware that everything you do and don't do, think, don't think, whether you live or die, you do that with consciousness of the Lord. You do it for him. You're aware of his heart and his will and his vision. You exist for him. And if you don't live in that level of consciousness for you, whatever it is that you're doing apart from that consciousness, it's sin. That's Paul really emphasizing the lordship, the absolute lordship of God. So that's the chapter, okay? And any violation of this dynamic in outward action or inner motive, Paul says, misses the mark. That's not how life is to be lived. Now, I grew up um, in a very strict, and uh, I would think I would use the word legalistic, uh, Christian uh, Presbyterian background. And uh, there's a bit of context to this. You know, I grew up in, in the immigrant uh, Korean uh, American church. And uh, what that meant was that uh, when the Koreans were uh, proselytized by the Presbyterians uh, to convert to Christianity, the whole culture was about smoking and drinking. And, and so as a way to differentiate from that secular culture, uh, the Presbyterians uh, made it a divine rule, basically, that if you drank or if you smoke, you're not a Christian. So one of the ways that you express your, the inner reality of your faith was through the outward abstention from drinking and smoking. And then uh, my church added to that playing cards. Uh, we weren't allowed to dance. We weren't allowed to listen to what they labeled secular music. And... Uh, uh, we weren't allowed to work on Sundays, which was a really hard thing for immigrants. And uh, we weren't allowed to curse. So those were the big, you know, top few things that we weren't allowed to do. I have this very specific memory uh, of me being in the 10th grade. And uh, a friend of mine decided to throw a youth group Halloween party. Now, as you all know, suppression leads to good things. And so... Being well-suppressed 10th graders, we were at this Halloween party, and somebody turned on the music. And then somebody rushed over, and I still remember this like it was yesterday, to make sure it was Christian uh, Halloween music. (laughs) 
finding none, uh, they started playing secular music. And then somebody got up and started moving their bodies a little bit to the beat. <laughs> and then another person, and before we knew, none of us knew what happened. All of us were having a dance party. It was the entire youth group dancing to secular music. And somehow word got out, and I'm not sure how, that there were a bunch of 10th graders dancing at the secular Halloween party. One of the Sunday school teachers, now to me he was really old, but now I realize he must have been like 19. (laughs) He drives over to this person's house, to this party, and he turns off the music and he starts reprimanding us. And we all feel so small. And so bad. And just, just the shrinkage you feel, you know, when somebody is condemning you and just talking, to you, talking down to you. And then he says, we have to end the party. But before we do, we're going to have a little prayer meeting. So we pray. And he gives us this chance to repent. And we repent of our sins and dust and ashes. And then uh, we somehow start, all start going home. And I end up in his car. But his car is too small. And so me and another kid end up in the trunk of his car. And this is in inner city New York. This is where I grew up, in the red light district. And then, so we're driving down the street. And we didn't close the trunk, so we're just sort of holding it down above us. And uh, he drives. And then I realized, as, right after we went past this one point, that we drove past a cop car. And then the cop turns on his lights and starts following us, pulls us over, makes us all get out of the car. And guess what happened? I kid you not. Every second of this story is true. The driver, the guy that had driven over to reprimand us and lead a prayer meeting of repentance, and then driving me home, he's driving without a license in an uninsured car. He gets arrested on the spot with all of us as witnesses, and he goes to jail that night. True story. I did not know God was such a fan of secular music. Total vindication is what I felt as a 10th grader. Can you imagine the smug smiles on our faces when we next saw him at church? By what authority is he to teach Sunday school? Here's here's the thing. When we are judging other people, by the way, there are so many passages where the Bible is telling us not to judge, but it's one of the top three traits that Christians are known for. You've got to love the irony of that. So the, the thing that happens when we judge other people is it causes us to take total focus off of God and off of other people, and it shifts all of the focus onto ourselves. This is the first thing that happens when we judge other people. Because even as the judgmental words are coming out of our mouths, the first thing we have to make sure of is that we at least pass the test. And so there's two things we want to talk about today. First is God, because that's the first thing that the focus is taken off of. And two is people. 
God and people. All right? And the title of the talk is Lord. Okay, first, God, we'll focus in here on verse 4. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now Paul, for Paul, this was a a huge statement about his own source of identity. He understood himself as a servant of the Lord. He's the very first person in the history of the world to exposit the gospel of Jesus Christ. You think about that burden. And for everybody else, this was brand new, including the Jewish pillar of the Christian faith, Peter, whom he had to rebuke because Peter didn't quite get the gospel. And so here we have Paul flying against the pressure and the norm and the momentum of everybody else on planet Earth, expositing the gospel for the first time. And so from where does he draw his sense of identity and legitimacy and worth? What gave him the exousia, the authority, and the dunamis, the power? Of course, it was God. He had to know through and through, that he belonged to the Lord, that he had a Lord other than Caesar, other than the Jewish authorities that were based in Jerusalem. He had to know this. He has a parallel verse in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, verse 3. He says this, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. Listen, it is the Lord who judges me. And this is what I love about good theology. It really, I think, uh, is supreme. Even though I love psychology so much, it really is supreme over even psychology. Here's what Paul is saying. It's not enough that I don't care what you think. And I think this is where the world and most pop psychology normally stops. I don't care what you think. It only matters what I think. Right? It's not, it's not important to me if you esteem me as long as I have self-esteem. And Paul says, nonsense. It doesn't matter what you think. I don't care at all what you think. Also, I don't care what I think. It doesn't matter to me at all what I think. Your esteem of me, my self-esteem, your judgment of how worthy I am or my self-worth, it's meaningless. Why? Because you're not sitting on the bench and neither am I. Do you have a gavel in your hands? No? I don't either. It doesn't matter. Because the Lord is the one who judges me. There are two eyes that are watching me. And by those eyes, I will stand or fall. And he is able to cause me to stand because I'm his servant, because he loves me, because he's the one who has sent me. Why would he want me to fail? There's a depth there. There's a strength there that is very, I think, counterintuitive to us. There's a myth about self 
acceptance. Try to accept yourself. You know, this is, this is what the world pitches to us. You know, don't look to the world to accept you. You have to first accept yourself. And Paul says, by what? All acceptance that's outside of the Lord, that's not from the Lord, is some arbitrary standard by which you are being accepted. And so it's not you, the naked true you, that's being accepted. But it's just some arbitrary standard that's being deemed as acceptable. And we know this. We know how fleeting it is. And we know how powerless and temporary that kind of acceptance is. By what standard are you accepted? What do you have to do? What minimum criterion do you have to meet before you say, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay? Who do you look to? I uh, was fighting a ticket. I got a ticket on the island for driving with my cell phone. And I really, really was genuinely confused by this because I see everyone driving on the island with their cell phone. And so the irony of the story is the day before, I had just asked Susie, Susie, is it okay to use cell phones around here? Because in Chicago and New York, there's signs everywhere and people aren't using their cell phones for the most part. And then the very next day, I found out that <laughs> if you have your phone to your ear, that's illegal. Did you know this? Now you do. Now you're accountable. Um, so I get pulled over, and I'm standing before this judge, and I realized he's got the gavel. There were all these other attorneys in the room. They were there, first name basis. They even started talking to me and saying hi, and we're just chatting. But I realized nobody matters in that courtroom. It doesn't matter how much they like me, who they, nothing, because none of us had the gavel. And then all of a sudden, we all have to stand we got to our feet, and then somebody walked in. And then all of a sudden, the room changed. And guess what? I had to pay. <laughs> <laughs> Who is your Lord? Do you believe there's anyone out there who has the power and the worthiness, the wisdom, the truthfulness, the integrity, the objectivity, the mercy and the kindness and the perspective to be your Lord? Does your spouse, does your parent, does your government? Who alone has the right or should have the right to be the Lord? Friends, I want to tell you, self-acceptance is a myth. It's elusive and you will never ever find it. And really, the best response to self-acceptance is, who cares? Who cares what I think about me? I really thought I should not have paid. That's a nice opinion. <laughs> and that's about it. But what does the Lord think? It is the Lord who judges me. To his own master, he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now, I'm married 17 years this August, and I'm a master of this game, and the game goes something like this. Do you love me? And then there's a follow-up question, even though. And that's a fill-in-the-blank. 
And on any given night, there could be 20 even those. Even though I, even though, it's like, yes, yes, yes. And then there's another follow-up question. It's, will you love me if? A lot of these are trap questions because what's, what, what people are really after is, do you really love me for who I am at my basest, most unadorned self? At that level, do you love me? And really, it's an existential question. It's, what am I? What is me? When every atom that makes up Peter changes out 100%. Several times, all the time, I'm changing out, right? What is me? What constitutes me? And do you love that me? Do you accept that me for what that me is? What, what level do I have to perform? How do I have to look? What do I have to say? What kind of energy level do I have to bring? What contribution? What's my value add? And when I have nothing, when you strip me down to the barest me that there is, do you still love me? I don't know about you, but my heart, my heart demands acceptance that only, I think, the Lord can give. And I I deduce this by the fact that no human being is capable of seeing me to the bottom even, let alone accepting me all the way to the bottom and back. Only the Lord's verdict matters, and only God's opinion is absolute. Now, uh, there's a bit of a problem that I have when I study this passage, and one of the first questions that may have come up in your mind as well is, people are so diverse, we require such customization, and so as as a group, as a society, we really have to be very pluralistic, And we have to be very relative rather than absolute if we are going to accept and love one another. Now, as somebody who really sees people, I'm in the people business, and I think we ought to be. When, When people are concerned, we have to be very pluralistic and very relativistic. And that's really what Paul is teaching here. But I'm also a Christian. And I really believe in moral absolutes and standards that we ought to strive for. And there are biblical ideals that I'm actually paid to uphold and proclaim from behind this pulpit. And what this pulpit means is that it's not my opinions. I'm not here to tell my stories, but my stories are in service to moral absolutes, to biblical absolutes and ideals and principles that I'm supposed to preach. Well, how do I do that? How do we do that balance? Because on the one hand, I want to accept my children for who they are. I want them to experience the total acceptance of God through my acceptance of them. I want them to get a taste of God through me, through my love. But I have to really be on my toes and be ready to adapt to there because they're just so different. And I'll just never get over how different my kids are from each other. You know, each day we're just shocked. It's shocking just how curiously, ridiculously different they are. 
Not just from each other, but from day to day. How do we do that? How do you do that? How would you love and accept someone in such a diverse setting that requires such pluralism and relativism? As a believer, if you're a Christian here and you have these absolutes, how do you, how do you maintain that tension? Verse 13 says this, Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in and of itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Now that is a really relativistic verse, isn't it? If it's unclean for you, it's unclean. But if it's clean for me, then it's clean. You don't want to play cards because you think it's sinful. I think Jesus would play cards with me. So we play cards as long as there isn't gambling involved. But gambling is okay if you just use chips and they don't stand for money. Or if the buy-in is less than $5, but there's inflation, so maybe it's $20. Where do you draw the line? Where is the Lord (laughs) in all of this? He's like, y'all work it out. (laughs) No. What do you think acceptance is? See, I think this is where the, uh, the reasoning breaks down here. What is acceptance? Just a hug? Just, oh, I love you. That's not what Bible says about what acceptance is. Look at verse 20. It says this. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. What is Paul saying there? You know, this person, they, they really feel stricken in their conscience if food was sacrificed to an idol next door. They can't buy it, even if it's a good deal. This one person says, you know, It's all the Lord's. And I really believe that. In my heart of hearts, I think it's clean. But I'm not going to do that in front of you or uh, I'm not going to uh, parade it around or I'm not going to force you to eat something or buy something because my conscience is clear when your conscience isn't. Because, why not? Not because I'm being relativistic or pluralistic or I'm being... None of that. It's because I believe that there is a work of God that's happening in all of us. Work of God. What what work of God? Because there is one standard, one moral absolute that God is all moving us towards. There is such a thing as position. But the posture that God demands of us is love and acceptance because, not because we're trying to be nice, not because we're trying to be politically correct, but because we know, bottom line, the Lord himself is working in all of us and none of us have arrived. Have any of you arrived Are you just there at the finish line going, where is everybody else? (laughs) 
Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. And Paul there is also saying, you know, and actually your conscience isn't as clear as you think it is. And also your motives aren't as pure as you think they are. There is God, the Lord himself, who is working in everybody. And for you to say, you know what? I'm going to, God has subcontracted out this value to me. And I'm, no, God hasn't. He remains the Lord. And so here's what acceptance is. Acceptance is saying, how can I participate in the work that God is already doing in all these people all around me? What, what is the best way for me to participate in the work, to join God in what he is doing? And here's what I think Paul is implying here. One of the ways is not to say, let me bear your anxiety for your own growth and try to inject my motivation into you and cause you to want the same things that I want at the pace and rate that I want it. Is that our job? To tell everybody all around us, you need to be where I'm at, and so let me just be your motivation for you. Let me overfunction while you underfunction, because I think my overfunctioning will help your underfunctioning. Is that true? Is that a good parenting technique to hover and just be like, you know what, you got this, but I got this with you. I know you're 24 years old. I know. Is that how it works? That'd be like playing tennis on both sides of the net. You run over to one side, you take their hand, you take a ball, you hold their arm, you hit the ball over for them, and then you run over, you got to make sure you hit the ball really high so you have time to get over. Then you hit the ball over, and then you run over again, grab your kid's hand. Is that how tennis is played? We cannot be each other's conscience. We cannot be each other's motivation. We cannot function for the other. In fact, psychologists would tell you that one of the ways to ensure your loved ones all around you underfunction is to continue to overfunction. It's very, very, very tricky. But one of the ways that growth is catalyzed in people all around us is not to bear their anxiety for their own life. And really, maybe a flip side question is asking this. As a way to participate in the work of God, because he's working. you got to believe this, because he's the Lord. Okay, How can I be a non-anxious presence? i got to be present. i got to stay connected. But how can I do it in a way that's non-anxious? And you figure that out. Verse 18, for he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. There is a way in any given moment to act and feel and relate to each other in such a way that it serves Christ and it's, it's approved by men. It's, it's in a winsome, likable way. 
It's in a way that is healthy and good in the eyes of God and in the eyes of men. And it builds each other up rather than tearing each other down. Let me sum it up in this one phrase. Because God is the Lord and he's always working, acceptance is not just a warm hug. Because part of the fear in us accepting each other is that we fear that if we accept the other, then the other will just stay that way. And so we withhold acceptance as a way to try to motivate them, to incentivize them to change. But that's not biblical acceptance. Because God is always working for us as believers in the power and work of the Holy Spirit. Here's what we say. Okay, this is the phrase. Acceptance is the door through which change happens. And partly why it's so hard for us to accept is because we think if we don't accept, they will stay that way. And we're, we're, we're so easily threatened. Our own standards, what we believe, our conscience is threatened. See, if I accept somebody that doesn't believe as I do, that doesn't see as I do yet, then what will happen to me? Am I lowering my standards? Am I compromising my own integrity? Does my acceptance of them communicate something that I don't want to communicate? That's human acceptance. The biblical acceptance says, no, I'm not threatened by you. I can embrace you because Christ has embraced me. And I will do everything in my power to accept you, even if it means I must die for you, is a way to participate in the work of God in your life. And so the acceptance of Christ isn't passive. What does the book of Hebrews say? In times of trouble, boldly approach the throne of grace. And there you will find the grace and mercy to help you in time of trouble. Meaning God embraces us first so that we can have the very resources to help us in time of trouble. He doesn't say get yourself cleaned up first and then I'll give you grace. No, 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 no. You have to first come into contact with me because I am the resource you need. And if you, my dear Christian friend, have the light and the love and the resources of God within yourself to help somebody else, how can they get that from you if you won't accept them? If they don't come in contact with you, then your claim to hope is worthless. Go sit and eat with the sinners, as they say, if you want to help them. For in this way, for he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. And through acceptance, through biblical acceptance, we bring together the relative, and the absolute. Now, let me conclude here with a story. I uh, was turned on to this story this week, and I read it about a dozen times to try to understand the meaning of this story. And uh, I think I know what it is, so let me read it to you. When's the last time somebody read you a kid's book? 
love you forever. A mother held her new baby and very slowly rocked him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And while she held him, she sang, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby you'll be. The baby grew. He grew and he grew and he grew. He grew until he was two years old and he ran all around the house. He pulled up. He pulled all the books off the shelves. He pulled all the food out of the refrigerator. And he took his mother's watch and flushed it down the toilet. Sometimes his mother would say, this kid is driving me crazy. But at nighttime, when that two-year-old was quiet, she opened the door to his room, crawled across the floor, looked up over the side of his bed. And if he was really asleep, she picked him up and rocked him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. While she rocked him, she sang, I'll love you forever, I'll like you for always, and as long as I'm living, my baby you'll be. The little boy grew, he grew, and he grew. And he grew, he grew until he was nine years old. And he never wanted to come in for dinner, he never wanted to take a bath. And when grandma visited, he always said bad words. Sometimes his mother wanted to sell him to the zoo. But at nighttime, when he was asleep, the mother quietly opened the doors to his room, crawled across the floor, and looked up over the side of the bed. If he was really asleep, she picked up that nine-year-old boy, and she rocked him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And while she rocked him, she sang, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby you'll be. The boy grew, he grew, and he grew and he grew. He grew until he was a teenager. He had strange friends, and he wore strange clothes, and he listened to strange music. Sometimes the mother felt like she was in a zoo. But at nighttime, when that teenager was asleep, the mother opened the door to his room, crawled across the floor, and looked up over the side of the bed. If he was really asleep, she picked him up, that great big boy, and rocked him back and forth, back and forth, and back and forth. While she was rocking, while she rocked, she sang, I'll love you forever, I'll like you for always, as long as I'm living, my baby, you'll be. That teenager grew, he grew, and he grew, he grew. He grew until he was a grown man. He left home and got a house across town. Well, that mother, she got older. She got older and older and older. One day she called up her son and said, you better come see because I'm very old and sick. So her son came to see her. When he came in the door, she tried to sing the song. She sang, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. But she couldn't finish because she was too old and sick. The son went to his mother. He picked her up and rocked her back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And he sang this song, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my mommy you'll be. When the son came home that night, he stood for a long time at the top of the stairs. Then he went into the room where his new baby daughter was sleeping. He picked her up in his arms and very slowly rocked her back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And while he rocked her, he sang, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, 
my baby you'll be. <clears throat> the key fact of this story, and it's from the author's own conclusion about this story, is that it's a story not just about love and acceptance, but about generations of love and acceptance. See, this story illustrates for all of us that acceptance, human acceptance, as good and as powerful and as instrumental as it can be, it really is a conduit to God's acceptance, which lasts forever. It's permanent and it's absolute. A mother's acceptance, it passes with her. A father's acceptance, it passes with him. But God's acceptance is the very acceptance we felt through those who accepted us. And God's acceptance is forever. And to accept us, the Bible tells us that Jesus died. Romans 15, 7 says this, accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you. And his acceptance cost him his life. And this is what I pray for us, that our acceptance of one another might be instrumental in conveying God's acceptance of us. And the most powerful way to do that is to die for one another, just as Christ died for us. Would you pray with me? Lord, we love you this morning because you have first loved us, and we love one another because you have shown us what love is. And the love which resides in us and flows through us is your love. I pray that in our church community that may be real and felt, and I pray that all those who are far and near to you may find a touch of your acceptance here in this church. And I pray that when we are going through the most difficult of times in life, this may be the place that others flock to, to experience your love. We look to you, and we look to each other in Jesus' name. Amen.